there, people. So for episode six of Crime War podcast, I'm talking to Victor Avila, who is the former agent of ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, who survived a shooting by the Setas drug cartel in Mexico. And he was next to the agent Jaime Zapata, who was killed. Now, this is kind of a big historical case of an agent being killed in Mexico. Stands next to the DEA agent Kika Camarena being murdered back in the 1980s. But the case of Zapata hasn't really found the same place in the American popular imagination for various reasons. But it's a very intense episode and Victor Avila survived this shooting by one of the most ultra-violent drug cartels. There are not many people who can say they survived the bullets. So this is a fascinating interview and he describes in detail what happened and why, despite what the Mexican and US government said, this does not look like a botched carjacking. This looks like a targeted hit. Now, thanks everybody for supporting the podcast. You can support by buying my books, El Narco, Gangster Warlords, my latest blood gun money. Please subscribe. Uh, please shoot me a mail. You can reach me at Yoan Grillo, I-O-A-N-G-R-I-L-L-O at hotmail.com. Find out more about my stuff on www.yoangrillo.com. Okay, enjoy the episode and catch you in the next one. It's great to talk to you. Now, he has written his account of what happened in his book, which was released in October, Agent Under Fire, A Murder and a Manifesto. I also do draw heavily on Victor's case in my own book, Blood, Gun, Money, How America Arms Gangs and Cartels, because there was tracing of the weaponry used in the attack on Jaime Zapata and Victor Avila, which was very extensive. So great to be here with you, uh, Victor. So, so starting off um, to talk about your case, it was, you know, this story being told needs to be told again. Um, what was it like getting there to the point in 2011, in February the 14th, 2011, who were you? What was happening on that day before the following day where, where, where the, this murder happened, this shooting happened? Yeah, I, I was assigned uh, officially to the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City, as, as, as you said, as an ICE agent, an ICE special agent. And uh, on February 14th, Valentine's Day uh, of 2011, uh, I was given a, I had just actually arrived back into Mexico from another investigation that had kept me out of the country for about a week and uh, I get a heads up saying that I'm going to be assigned to go pick up some equipment from the ICE agents out of our Monterey office out of the U.S. consulate there and uh, I immediately challenged the assignment for various reasons not just uh, the reason that I was very busy and needed to be in the office I didn't understand why they had chosen me but second because of uh, we knew the intelligence of what was going on on that highway 57 which is the main corridor between uh, that we would travel from Mexico City all the way up to Monterey uh, uh, that leads us all the way up to Texas. And I'm very familiar with that, with that highway. I had driven it many, many times before. 
And so this time what was different is that we knew that the Zetas controlled this area. We knew that the Zetas uh, had, had a lot of firefights between uh, other cartel members, the police and the Mexican military. But uh, somehow our, my supervisors ignored that intelligence. They ignored an alert by the State Department through the uh, U.S. ambassador prohibiting any U.S. employee from driving on that highway, whether it was for personal reasons or business reasons. And so even, even with the alert, even with the intelligence, my supervisors at, at the U.S. Embassy still sent, uh, uh, sent me and uh, Special Agent Jaime Zapata, which I met him that day on February 14th when they said, you're going to take uh, the TD wire referencing Jaime Zapata as a TD wire, meaning that he was there as a temporary duty assignment uh, agent out of the Laredo office was there temporarily working, uh, helping on another case. And you will take him to help you drive to come back or get pick up this equipment and bring it back the next day. And so even after the challenge failed, uh, we were set off to go the following morning, very early on February 15th. Now, just taking it back a little bit more, like where are you from in the United States and what was your job in Mexico City at that time? Yeah, I'm originally from El Paso, Texas, uh, first generation Mexican-American. And uh, I worked most of my uh, uh, law enforcement career in, in Texas and on the border. Uh, I was a United States probation officer before that and worked for the U.S. courts. I worked for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice uh, before that, and uh, then became an agent. And I, I became an agent when the Department of Homeland Security was just created through the U.S. Customs Service and then what we know as ICE now. And so you fast forward to 2008, and that's when my first assignment started in Ciudad Juarez, which was at back, back then the, the, the most dangerous city in the world. That assignment led to my assignment in Mexico City. When I arrived in Mexico City, other than working anything, everything you can imagine, uh, uh, money laundering, drug trafficking, arms trafficking, uh, all these uh, violations that we see, uh, my focus was on human trafficking. And I led uh, the Global Trafficking in Persons Initiative, uh, and I investigated human trafficking organizations that would uh, uh, engage victims and, and smuggle them and bring them into the United States for sexual exploitation purposes and some for, for forced labor purposes as well. And so I did a lot of that. I rescued a lot of women and children uh, in Mexico and in the United States and was able, very successful in taking down uh, a lot of these organizations uh, and also dealt a lot with uh, illegal, uh, the human smuggling aspect of it where the cartels, and we've seen that a lot today, uh, the cartels started moving into human smuggling, not just the drug trafficking, but uh, a lot of uh, trafficking of not just Mexicans or Central Americans, but of Chinese nationals and what we call special interest aliens. And these are individuals coming from uh, special interest countries that have been identified by the Department of Homeland Security that might have a tie to terrorism and a national security issue, of course, that it is. We, we followed and investigated those smuggling routes and these individuals that would arrive in Mexico and then get uh, smuggled into the United States to avoid detection. So that's a very interesting thing there. I mean, obviously a lot of, and everyone's heard of ICE, they became really well known, I think during the Trump administration and the very politicized environment uh, and about deportations and, and these kind of things. But there are, is another side to ICE or other sides to ICE. And there are agents within Mexico. So you were here assigned in Mexico City uh, and these things of, of sex trafficking. So women, I mean, there's a lot of these cases, especially from states like Tlaxcala of, of women being uh, against their will taken to the United States. 
and forced into prostitution and these very shady things. And ICE is also involved in these kind of efforts as well. So, so you mentioned on this day of February the 14th, you had this mission. So then you wake up on 2015 with this mission to go along with Jaime Zapata, who's from Laredo, Texas, um, or Br uh, Brownsville, Brownsville, Texas. Originally from Brownsville, but was working out of the Laredo office. And, and who's there, uh, a, a big guy, a, a big tall, tall guy, uh, a, 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 I see, you know, photo, you know, photo, photos of Bill he stood out, big long limb guy from, from Brownsville, Texas, uh, with his mission to go to Monterrey or go to meet agents from Monterrey and pick up the equipment. Can you describe that morning, what it was like getting up and, and, and going on this mission? Uh, for me, it was, uh, it, was, it was hard for me because I had been traveling so much that uh, I was having a struggle at home with, with that, with my wife and my kids. And uh, I remember my daughter telling me at 6.30 in the morning that morning, uh, you're going out of town again. And I, li I basically lied to her. I said, no, I'm not going out of town. I I'm still here. But she says uh, very keenly, you're not wearing a suit because I always wore a suit to the U.S. Embassy. And she knew that when I did not wear a suit, uh, I was traveling. And so I said, no, no, I don't have to wear a suit today. I just didn't want to tell her that I was traveling again, expecting to be back later that same day. But anyway, Jaime Zapata shows up. We, we set off in my armored uh, 2009 armored Suburban that was issued to me. Uh, that's the only vehicle that, I, that was driven was driven by me because we picked it up when they were brand new. And we head off north uh, and uh, we hit it off. We have a great conversation, Jaime and I. Uh, Felt like we knew each other for a long, long time. We had a lot of things in common, him being from a border town, just like I was, uh, his expectations and, and ambitions to uh, better his career. He wanted to eventually serve permanently, possibly at the Mexico City office. And so I, I found myself uh, kind of uh, advising him and mentoring a, a bit about how I got there in my career. So we had a great conversation driving north to meet with our counterparts from Monterey. And so we did, uh, uh, eventually about 11.30 in the morning, we made contact with uh, the ICE agents from the Monterey office. We exchanged this equipment. We picked this equipment up from them, which is a lot of boxes, by the way, uh, large boxes that we had to fit in the back of the Suburban. Uh, we had to lower the, 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 the seats, the third row seat, the second row seat to accommodate these large boxes that were uh, electronic surveillance equipment and tracking devices that were gonna be used for another case, a big money laundering case that uh, ironically I was very, very, very uh, involved with. And so um, we pick it up, head back south and, uh, you know, by 1.30 or so we are uh, near San Luis Potosí at a place that we would stop all the time for lunch. In this case, we stopped at a, at a Subway sandwich shop that Jaime wanted to eat at. We had a great lunch outside, you know, it was 72 degrees on February 15th. It was a beautiful day. And once we stop eating and we're done, we, uh, I give the keys to Jaime so he could then continue to help me drive because I had driven two and most of the way back. And so we still were out about four and a half, maybe five hours from uh, the city limits of Mexico City. And I told him, when we get to Mexico City, I will take over for the Suburban because as you know, the, the traffic is horrific there and rush hour is a, lot, a little bit later in Mexico City and we would be hitting that rush hour. And so uh, additionally, Jaime would have the ability to get familiar with the, with the armored vehicle. He had never driven an armored vehicle before. And so to, to get familiar on the open road was probably the best way for him to get 
used to the acceleration and the braking, which is very different on a, on a vehicle that, that, you know, weighs almost six tons. And so he does, he starts, sets off driving and within quickly, within 15 minutes, uh, we are, uh, approached by two SUVs. Uh, and Jaime is the one that alerted me initially to one, uh, where he sees a silhouette of a long gun, long gun, like a rifle, uh, sticking up in the middle of the seat. And I see it. And, uh, these guys are, are, you know, they passes at a fast rate of speed and then they dramatically slow down to where we are right next to each other. It's a two lane highway. We're on the far right and there's an SUV next to us and an SUV in front of us full of armed men pushing us to the shoulder and forcing us to slow down. And eventually what we call a rolling roadblock uh, where the front vehicle slows down and the side vehicle slows down at the same time. And in order to avoid a collision, you, 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 pull, you pull to the side. Eventually they, they conduct it with their uh, automatic weapons out pointing at us from side to side, from, you know, windshield to windshield just and just eventually one, push us. Just one second. And I just think just, just, I mean, it's an incredible scene in this vehicle, the plates on the vehicle, what are the, what are the license plates on the vehicle? They are diplomatic plates on the vehicle. Uh, very, very recognizable. They're, they're different. Um, they're, they say Mission Diplomatica MD. Well, um, so it's a diplomatic vehicle. Now, if anybody is ever in this situation, and I think I do drive around these places, you get one vehicle on the front, one vehicle on the side. I mean, they slow down. Is there any way you can get out of that? I mean, you basically, that, that's it. There's no way out of that. There's no way out other than, uh, you know, we, they almost cause a collision on, the, on, on Hyman's side. That's how close they get, mirror to mirror. And then the vehicle in the front, so you're slowing down, trying to avoid a collision. And, and they force you off to where they basically block you in. And that's what they did and led us off to a right shoulder. Now the area where, where, we, where, where the vehicle ended up pushed to the right shoulder is a, is a, was a big, big area. Sometimes in these parts of the highway, there's, there's nowhere to park or stop. In this case, there was a big area where we pulled over to the right shoulder and immediately uh, about eight of them come out with uh, their long guns, some with handguns, and do a, a, a surround our suburban, like in a half moon shape, uh, point at us. And this whole time they've been screaming at us to open the doors, get out, get out, open the doors of the suburban, all in Spanish, by the way. And so um, we are immediately with our hands up, uh, clearly, uh, uh, Jaime never, never says a word because we, we were talking about this before. He, I told him, if you want to come to Mexico, you have to brush up on your Spanish skills because, you know, Spanish is is what we conduct businesses in, in Mexico. And uh, I, I, I take over and, and yeah, I'm yelling at them. We are Americans. We are U.S. diplomats. We are U.S. embassy employees. We are not who you think that we are. Let me identify myself on my diplomatic passport. I'm yelling this at the top of my lungs and all I could see is evil in their eyes and they're yelling, get out in, in profanity and in, in language and Spanish. One of them, eventually one of the shooters comes to Jaime's side driver door and opens the door, literally opens the door, swings it open. And Jaime immediately grabs the handle and shuts the door. And we were kind of stunned that the door opened because uh, when Jaime placed the vehicle in park, the, the Suburban was programmed to unlock all four doors. So we immediately start pushing the lock buttons and we do, we lock the doors and they're yanking at all four doors, trying to open the doors, open the doors. And they're banging on the glass, on the armored glass. 
and the bulletproof gas. And uh, while we were uh, hitting the the lock buttons, the the window buttons are right next there, right next to the to those lock buttons. And we inadvertently lowered my window on my side a couple of inches, and we didn't know. We were still in chaos and yelling and screaming until two of the shooters came to my side and one introduced an AK-47 barrel and a handgun right by my head. And so I Im immediately turned to the post to avoid you know, that and I raised the window and it caught the barrels of both guns. And so I see them wiggling the rifle and the handgun and, uh, and without notice, they open fire into the cabin of the Suburban. And I see Jaime get hit on his side and he yells out i'm hit um you know my hearing is gone i still have hearing loss i have permanent hearing loss on my left ear because that, i mean they're firing the the handgun right next to my ear that uh eventually uh i tell jaime go 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 i start wrestling with the handgun and burn my hand uh try to wiggle it uh eventually they pull out both guns the window goes up i raise the window it goes up and they just start spraying with bullets over a hundred rounds on that side. And I tell Jaime, go, go, go. Jaime was already becoming unresponsive. I put the Suburban in gear. I push his knee onto the gas and we crash the Suburban that's in front of us blocking us. I'm trying to get the, the Suburban back on Highway 57, but it really just rolls into the median. And I'm trying to steer the, the steering wheel back on Highway 57, but there was the, uh, at that point, the Suburban was destroyed. It was disabled. The, the, the tires were flat. The vehicle didn't start anymore at that point. And, uh, and they kept continue shooting. And I'm attending to Jaime because he was uh, shot several times and was shot uh, lethally was with the AK-47 round in his left leg. And so there was a, a tremendous amount of bleeding. Uh, but at the same time that that's going on, I see the Suburbans take off or their SUVs of the Setas and one of them turns around and does a U-turn and they come back and park in front of the, of the Suburban and two of them get out and they look at me and look at them and they just spray, start shooting uh, through the, wind, the window in these two spots. And if you go online, you can see the, the picture of the Suburban and I just kind of freeze there and they run back into the Suburban, they leave. And at that point, I realized that uh, I still hadn't realized that I had been shot myself three times, once in the chest and twice in my leg. Uh, and I'm attending to Jaime. I get on the phone. I call the U.S. Embassy. That phone call is recorded and you can find it online where I call out that we are shot. We are shot on the highway. I'm an ICE special agent, Victor Avila. Um, eventually, I get to directly call a, the Mexican Federal Police, uh, the commander that, that ran our vetted unit who was able to dispatch a helicopter. So all that is said and done, it took about 40 minutes, which in the law enforcement world is a long, long time to be waiting there. And, and it was a very, very, as you can imagine, a very scary time. And uh, I, I tried to do as much as I could to, uh, to keep Jaime uh, conscious at that time. So you're sitting in the car at this moment, Jaime, um, you say he's kind of in and out of consciousness at this time, is he? He's got, now he's been hit, I believe five times. I think so. I, I, I don't know the exact number of times with, on the side, but the, really the one that I was concerned with, it was the leg that he was uh, uh, bleeding a lot through there. So and at the same time, you've also been hit three times, is it? Three times. Um, so you're, but you're feeling, you're not feeling your consciousness going. 
Um, you're trying to keep him in and out of consciousness during, during 40 minutes. I mean, how did, you know, what did that seem like? I mean, what was your memory? I mean, is it kind of blocked out of that time or do you remember it very sharply? What's your memory like of that moment? I remember it very sharply. And, uh, I, I, you know, I tell the story a lot. And every time there's always uh, something that will always, uh, I know just last year, for example, uh, something that I hadn't thought about or, or remembered a lot was, was the smell. And I get a little bit of shivers telling you as I tell you the story, but uh, as I, um, is the smells of the, not so much the gunpowder because I've been able to shoot guns afterwards and all that, and that's okay but different smells of blood and other smells in inside the cabin that have come back so many years later. And we're talking about 10 years later, and this was happened just last year for me. And so there's sometimes you're right. There are things that uh, either I just blocked and then they come back, but the overall scene, I remember it just like as if it was yesterday. Uh, I remember Jaime um, not being responsive. I remember uh, shaking him uh, sometimes even, you know, lightly slapping them on the face to keep them awake uh, on this whole time on the phone with the helicopter pilot, with the U.S. agents, with the Mexican federal police, with a lot of people on the phone trying to tell them where we're at on Highway 57 to come and find us. Uh, and eventually the cavalry showed up and they get us, the helicopter lands on Highway 57. They take us to the nearest town, which is in the city and state of San Luis Potosí. Uh, the hospital there. And, and that's when uh, the fear really set for me when I was on the phone is the first time that I realized that I was shot because my coworker from the US embassy had told me to check myself. And so that's the first thing he said, I had a lot of glass and shrapnel uh, on my face. So I had a lot of blood of mine and Jaime. And so it, it was very hard to tell until I looked at my chest. And I had a stream of blood coming down my chest. And then I looked at my leg and, oh my God, my leg, uh, you know, I, I thought this is what uh, I'm going to bleed out myself here. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I put a belt over my, uh, uh, like a tourniquet uh, on my leg and uh, just held my chest together. They eventually got us, took us to the hospital and the real fear then I didn't have people ask me, were you afraid during that whole time? I don't think I had, the opportunity to be afraid is not until we got to the hospital that I was petrified. I knew that these cartels, how they function. I've investigated these cases where they go back and finish people off at hospitals. And I thought for sure, that's what they were going to do to me at the hospital. Now, I think mean, most people, you know, know something of the setas. I mean, this is one of the most fearsome cartels, particularly in this time period. I mean, 2011, was them reaching their height, 2011, 2012, before they got really hammered. Now, what became the official version, both from the Mexican side and the US side, US side, was that this was this carjacking, the setters were under order to steal vehicles for various uh, drive-bys and, and operations they were doing. Now that immediately to me jumps out as being you know, wrong or problematic because the, even the basic um, low-level guys, the first thing they get taught is to read plates. You know, they get taught to read. You know, it's really basic. That's what the Halconers get taught when they call on their phones. It's like, read the plates. And yours was diplomatic plates, something funny there. And it had a big um, uh, Mission Diplomatica, yeah? It was MD. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and these were high level operatives who did like a very sophisticated blockade, you know, like a lot of guys with guns. So these were not low level operatives. What other signs do you think that this was not what the both the American and Mexican government said it was in terms of just some carjacking gone wrong? That's a great question because uh, uh, I never thought it was a carjacking. It never felt like a carjacking. Uh, it, you know, it, it, that wasn't the, the premise. And on top of this, they knew and they heard that we were Americans for many, for many years. I doubted myself that in fact, they had hurt me, but I knew they had hurt me. And in fact, they testified to it in 2017 in the district court in, in Washington, DC, these individuals, they were caught and extradited. And I couldn't believe my ears that when they testified that in fact, they heard me that they said that they knew that we were Americans, that they knew that we were U.S. Embassy employees, and they still decided to open fire. And you know, Ian, uh, we have uh, DEA agents, FBI agents that have been held at gunpoint many, many times in different places around the country, in Monterrey, and Ciudad Juarez, and uh, in Tijuana, and even in Mexico City. And when the bad guys find out that these are U.S. federal agents, they kind of back off and said, oh, oh, shit, you know, this is we uh, this is uh, this is not who we thought they were. And, and, and they let it go at that point. But the setas uh, functioned differently at that time. They they made a conscious uh, decision at that time to open fire, even knowing knowing that they knew that we were Americans. So this is definitely not a carjacking. Uh, this is definitely not, they destroyed that vehicle and uh, uh, other intentions. I don't know what they were. If we would have opened those doors, I, I, I can't I can't tell you uh, and possibly I believe that I probably wouldn't be able to be here to tell you that story if I would have, that it would have gained access into the, into the cabin. Now, other things, what do you think, other things you saw that day or that, that when I put together this story, that, that makes you think this could have been a setup that they, you know, were following your activities or the activities of the people who came from the U.S. consulate in Monterrey and were somehow monitoring and deliberately saying, okay, well, let, let's do a hit on American agents in Mexico, which is something which is much more explosive in its implications, but it could be that really what happened. So what else do you think other things that could alert you to that possibility? There was one uh, instance that happened on uh, when we, when we picked up the equipment and almost within a few minutes after driving, there was a marked uh, federal police uh, unit in the middle of the highway on, in, in the, in the median by himself, a uniformed police officer, Mexican federal police officer with an M4 standing in a kind of three quarter position scanning traffic, which if you think about it anywhere and in any country that is kind of uh, a eerie, weird, why, why would an officer be doing that by himself? And we, uh, I got scared. I told Jaime, we, we slowed down. The other traffic was slowing down and wondering, what does this guy want? This is not a checkpoint. It's just a guy by himself looking at cars go by. And we look at him and uh, he stares at us. I stare at him and I tell Jaime, shit, that guy scares me. I'm scared. And he says, yeah, me too. I said, ah, I just kept on looking at him through the mirrors as we kept on driving. That possibly, I, I, I could only speculate, but maybe, you know, as, as, uh, as things happen in Mexico with the police working with a lot of these cartels, he could have definitely been a lookout, uh, definitely could have identified this uh, several uh, uh, miles before. Right, so there are indications there for that for some reason these were not played up in the U.S. Uh, prosecution or by the Mexican government. Uh, but there's a lot of intrigue happening around that time because you had also 
members of the setas or people who'd work with the setas would flip to become informants for the DEA. And you had horrific massacres the setas were carrying out, like in the town of Allende, Coahuila. So there's a lot, I think there's a lot more that could be at play there. Now, the funeral, Jaime Zapata passed away. At what, at what moment did you, did, you know he, did you know he was dead by the time that the uh, federal agents arrived? Um, and, no, no, uh, not until the, um, uh, I remember when they took him, I said, hey, your partner, I, I told him, I'm not leaving without him. I'm not getting the helicopter without him. And you bring him. And I was yelling at these uh, federal police officers and soldiers that showed up. And they're like, okay, okay, we'll bring him, we'll bring him. And they brought him and put him in the helicopter with me. And when we got to the, to the hospital, they took me into one trauma room. They took me into, they took Jaime into another. And a lot of people don't understand. They thought in the hospital, they didn't know that we were Americans. They assumed that we were Mexican federal police. And, uh, and so I, I never identified myself for the first, uh, I don't know how long it was, like a good hour, hour and a half. I never told them my name. I didn't tell them I was American. I didn't want to tell them any information because I feared for my life even more so at the hospital. I thought for sure they're gonna come and finish me here. And I didn't wanna tell them, I didn't want, I refused any medication. I didn't want to be put under or, or be killed in that fashion. Um, it wasn't until uh, the Mexican federal police sent the reinforcements and secured the building that I actually told them and I actually yelled out and, and tell them my name is Victor Avila, I'm an American, I'm a US embassy. And I was very, very, very upset as you can imagine. But a doctor did come and tell me that uh, they did everything that they possibly could. Uh, he told me in Spanish, your, your, your partner has expired. And in, in Spanish, it sounds a little weird, expiro, and I didn't appreciate those words, but I did tell him to please treat him with dignity and respect um, uh, as a U.S. agent that I served. And he said, we will. And, uh, and, and we just waited until the first Americans arrived about uh, three or four hours after that. Now, in that moment, um, you know, you're the, the, old, the elder senior guy. Um, there's a lot of things that are very messed up about this, about why you're on that road, about the vehicle itself, the fact it didn't lock and that was a mistake in the, uh, having an armored vehicle that didn't lock and that could have saved him. But when, when you found that the, the younger guy you were with, the, the junior guy you were with had passed away and you survived, what were your feelings? Do you feel bad in yourself? Like he's dead, I'm alive. What were the kind of emotions that were going through you at that time? Uh, those emotions definitely came uh, later for me and that struggle of the, uh, what they call the survivor's guilt. I definitely went through that, um, you know, especially when you start hearing a lot of uh, the rhetoric as how, how in the heck do you survive, you know, getting shot at over a hundred rounds, the, the other person dies and you don't, it doesn't make any sense. And, and so I'll tell you right now, the only reason I'm here is because of the grace of God. And it's my faith that, that, that makes me believe that. Uh, that God did not want to take me that day. And it's plain and simple as that. But when I was there during that time in the hospital, I felt uh, as a Mexican-American, as, a, as a, a, a descendant, my parents are from Mexico and first generation American. I felt so alone and so out of place. Uh, this was not my country. Uh, I felt like such an outsider. I felt like I could have been in China for all intents and purposes. That's how I felt. I felt like a, an outsider that didn't belong there. And all I wanted to do was get out and come home. Now you went home um, and there was a funeral for Jaime Zapata. Um, among the attendees was Eric Holder, the attorney general at the time. And 
um, the head of Homeland Security. So that was a, a big deal. There was this effort to capture the, the setas and there was captures and various people were arrested over the time. And one of the things that came out of the case was that firearms in used by this group of setas had passed through the United States. Um, AK-47 variants, including a Draco, uh, small, short uh, Kalashnikov, whose maker says, uh, who I met, the guy who designed that weapon, he says the most smallest Kalashnikov in the world, and the longer uh, um, AK-47. Um, but among things, it was found out they had been trafficked through Texas, and people involved in that trafficking were being watched by... DA agents by, by different people, uh, and maybe that could have been stopped. How did that make you feel, this kind of, the fact that those guns had come to the United States, and the fact that perhaps there could have been better efforts, the Justice Department concluded, there could have been better efforts to try and stop the traffickers of those weapons, get into the hands of the people who murdered your partner and left you with these injuries for life? Well, the uh, devastation uh, was, to say the least, but, uh, you know, Fast and Furious had just, just just broken a couple of months before with the with the death of Agent Brian Terry in Arizona, the Border Patrol agent that was murdered with Fast and Furious weapons. You know, the gun walking operation, and this was exactly the same thing. It's just happened out of Texas, and and there's a link there, but it's a gun walking operation. ATF had, like like you said, very accurately had identified the the arms traffickers uh, sending duffel bags full of guns. To Mexico without them ever being uh, watched or traced or, or followed through with a controlled delivery or there was no there was no enforcement uh, other than let them go into Mexico and arm these uh, cartels and so it is very devastating to uh, to learn that in fact our government ha had the opportunity to arrest these individuals months before because they had them identified fully identified so much that uh, as soon as our shooting happened, they were in custody within a few days. That's how quickly they went and picked them up. And so um, it, it, it makes no sense that this government would want to participate in a, in a probably the biggest botched U.S. law enforcement operation ever in, created by a, law, a federal law enforcement agency. And this is Fast and Furious that I'm talking about and allowing guns to walk. Uh, under the watch of the federal government, because there's a lot, a lot of people that were affected, not just us, uh, but uh, gun shop owners and other people. And these guns, by the way, have turned out, turned up in very many, many, many murder scenes, not just in Mexico, but around the world in Paris. And, uh, and it's not just weapons, it's uh, uh, night vision goggles and 50 caliber weapons, a lot of other uh, things that they allowed to, to go into Mexico. So to this day, we still don't have answers. We've tried, and uh, because of a executive privilege order uh, asserted by uh, President Obama, it's kept us from, from obtaining documents related to Fast and Furious or even our shooting. So, so with this, I mean, this is obviously part of, of, of how things went bad, the relationship between you and the government, which you were a, a federal agent for many years, but also you, you kind of fell out with the organization of ICE, with the agency of ICE, um, and eventually got medical retirement. I uh, talk a bit through about what I mean. Looking back now with this time, you know why that happened. Why that? Um, I mean, I did not give you the backup you deserved. You know, you, you, why did things go wrong between you and ICE and and the federal government after you surviving? You know, 
being shot in the line of duty, which you think, you know, this makes you a historic figure, I think, in, in, in the Mexican-US relations. You know, why did this, you know, go badly for you? I wish I knew the answer for that. I, I never expected or, or requested any special uh, treatment from my government. All I wanted them was to just take care of me and my family in a, in a normal sense. You know, after an agent goes through this, uh, this kind of trauma and this kind of event, they just didn't know how to deal with me. And whether it was because of the weapons, whether it was because we, we filed a lawsuit because we tried to, um, you know, question the decision-making from our supervisors, um, which by the way, that, that, that never ended with any recovery. It was dismissed or the same reason because we never received do uh, documents from the government. So the, so the lawsuit was dismissed. We, we, we were just exercising our rights to try to get answers from our own government, but ICE and the Department of Homeland Security basically did not open the doors they, for me to continue to go work. They, they never made it. Uh, I could have gone back in, any, in many, many different capacities to go serve uh, and continue my service, but they basically closed those doors and I found myself um, in, in a very awkward position where uh, I still struggle with the loyalty to the government. I was a very loyal federal employee and, and then came to the harsh realization that my career actually ended that day that I got shot at. I just didn't know it. And I still thought that I was going to go back to work. And eventually I realized that that wasn't going to happen. They didn't want me back. And uh, I didn't want to go back at, at that point. And so, like you said, I, I sought a medical retirement and it was granted in 2015. Now, I mean, I'd love to keep talking. I know you've got another interview. So it'd be great to cover in the, in the future, come back and talk in more detail about your, you say your books actually a murder and a manifesto and you have chapters where you talk about your vision of border policy and so forth. Um, I'd love to get back in, in, in the future on, on, on the podcast and talk about those, but for the last five minutes, uh, just to talk a bit about this polarization in America right now. Uh, and I think your case and these issues fall very much into this polarization. Um, why do you think, I mean, your case, I think your case should be, well-known across the border. I don't think it's political in a sense of left or right. You know, this is, this is, this is the, the history of the US United States and an operation going all kinds of places. The issue of the guns going down is, you know, for, you know, it gets confusing politically because, you know, there's a lot of critics from the left about the firearms, but then the right about the, you know, bad box operations. Um, why do you think um, your case and you've been received so much more by the conservative media than perhaps by the you know the mainstream media in terms of this coverage, you see you see that, or, or how do you see that? I, I do, I do, and, and I wish I, I had more access to the mainstream media to to tell my story because uh, you're absolutely right. A lot of my story is a uh, is a really a nonpartisan issue. This is something that happened, and it's a it's a, a, a national security issue. Uh, it was an, a U.S. agent killed in line of duty serving to protect our homeland. Didn't matter who the president was. Uh, maybe it became partisan because, it, uh, partisan because it happened under the Obama administration. Maybe it became partisan because of the treatment that we received uh, afterwards and they basically didn't care for us. Maybe it's that. Uh, either way, what I talk about in the second part of my book, that manifesto, is my own experiences of dealing with the border, with the human trafficking, with the human smuggling, with the sanctuary city policies and what I see in so real solutions from a person that has actually worked the cases, a person that's lived there and has worked there. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a pundit that, has, that goes and visits for five minutes and, 
and tell you I'm an expert. I'm actually a subject matter expert in, in human trafficking. And so I've, I've seen it firsthand and I continue to see it as you and I speak today, what's going on on our border. And, and, and I just think that uh, it comes to a point where we should, uh, this polarization that you say is, uh, is, is not benefiting anyone in our country, that's for sure. And I think uh, by me sharing the story and telling uh, of what I think these solutions would help be uh, when it comes to the cartels and all the other things that, that I mentioned, I think it, it would it would be it would benefit people to know the story and at least to listen to 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 the side that I bring and the solutions that I offer because I think they're good ones. I think that they they're logical, they're common sense solutions that uh, could possibly benefit the U.S. and believe it or not, even the people that are trying to gain access into our country. Greg, just a, a last question then, and it's been great, uh, you know, hearing this again and say we've got to talk again. But last question for now. Uh, you know, you're born in the United States. Your parents came from Mexico. So your grandparents from here, from, from here, you have cousins from here in Mexico. Uh, I've been here 20 years. I'm from the UK originally. Um, so both of us kind of know two countries uh, well. Uh, you obviously very much care about what happens here and about the violence in Mexico. And you care about the effects in the United States and, and the drug overdoses and all of these things. So there's border issues. You understand both sides of the border there. Uh, what hope do you see? I mean, the, you know, the 20 years I've been here, um, the story, that, this horrific story of Mexico, what's happened here for people here, of which, you know, your case, again, is part of this history, um, but also record over those deaths in the United States and then a very, very polarizing environment in the United States connected often to border issues here. How much optimism do you have for solving this issue uh, you know, in, 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 a, in a few words, you know, you see it more as something that can be done binationally, internationally, or each country has to take its own kind of take, you know, charge of its own house and deal with these issues. I think, I think actually a little bit of, uh, of all of the above. And uh, yeah, I am passionate about what happens in Mexico. I think there's a, a strong relationship that what's going on and, happen, and, and happens in Mexico affects us directly in our country. And that's the message that I try to give. Uh, with the cartels, how present they are in the U.S. They might be headquartered in, in the Mexico, but they have a direct effect with the, the drugs that they continue to bring, the human smuggling, the trafficking. And really what it comes to, uh, when I say border security, it enables all that. Um, and this is not a, 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 I think it's a protection of our sovereignty uh, and our laws as well. And uh, I, I, I try to remain optimistic. It's hard when you see the conditions continue to derail and continue to crumble. Uh, when I started in 2008 there in Mexico, I, I thought for sure this is the lowest uh, that Mexico could be at. This is the worst, the violence. And I thought this is the only way that Mexico can go up now is up and, and better the situation. I was actually, unfortunately, I was very wrong. It's gotten worse. It's gotten worse with the cartels. It's gotten worse with the insecurity. It's gotten worse with uh, all the illegal activity. And, and I hope that, that, that in the near future, the relationship between Mexico and the US can improve because it definitely will take both countries uh, to move uh, us in a better direction.